Please uh, take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 18, toward the latter part of Acts chapter 18. You may remember that two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul was in the city of Corinth in our trek through Acts. And remember, the Lord said that He was going to protect Paul, and He had many people in that city who would be saved, and so Paul ministered for an extra year and a half, which is the second longest time he ever spent in a city that I'm aware of, and he gets ready to leave. You remember that wonderful Christian couple, the tent makers he was getting to know there? Aquila and Priscilla, you remember them? And so if you want, I'm going to sort of review a little bit of, the, of two weeks ago just to catch us all back up to speed. And... Um, I may make you flip-flop here between, I've got a map on the screen, if you can sort of tell where we're at in that map, and then I am going to give you a little bit of an overview of what's happening here. So let's look. Paul, I'll go ahead and circle on the screen. He's here in Corinth in that little box. And if you look at verse 18 of Acts 18, let's look at what happens here from two weeks ago. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, this is in Corinth, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria, which is the port city next to Corinth, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. I'll just pause. I did not say anything about that two weeks ago. And probably Paul is taking something along the line of a Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. You say, why would he do that? That's part of the ceremonial law. Well, yes, I know. Paul was not bound by Old Testament ceremonial law, and he broke those laws often because he was not bound by them under God in the New Covenant, but there were times in which he still did things that would agree with the ceremonial law, and we'll look at other cases in Acts 21. But for the time being, he does make a vow here to the Lord, which involved growing his hair out and then cutting it. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. So you can see here on the map, they come across the ocean, or the little Aegean Sea, and they end up in Ephesus. And he left them there, referring to Priscilla and Aquila, left them in Ephesus, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. So if you look at the screen, he makes his way down, to, uh, down here, and he says, I'm coming back if God, you know, Lord willing, I will come back to see you. He gets to Caesarea, he goes up to the church there in Jerusalem, then he goes down, even though to us it is north, to his home church in Antioch right there, and he reports, no doubt, all that the Lord has done over these last several years that he's been gone on this lengthy missions trip. Then he's going to pick up from his hometown, and he's going to begin heading back through previous churches. Look with me at verse 22, which ends Paul's second missionary journey. Verse 22, when he had landed in Caesarea, that's the port city, he went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem, and then he went down to Antioch. That's his home church. Now, right there is where his second missionary journey ends, and his third begins in the next verse. So now we are beginning Paul's third missionary journey. And just pause here. I know we're looking all over the place, looking at your Bible, looking at the map, but hang on for a second. I'll just tell you that Paul's third missionary journey, he does a lot of things, and he goes to a lot of places. But Luke spends the overwhelming amount of the time describing it in one city. It's the city of Ephesus, where today's passage and the next two Sundays, Lord willing, will, will, will be in this city. Uh, so, he spends three years about in Ephesus, the longest time he spends anywhere at any point in his missionary journeys. And so, let's look at as, as this missionary journey begins in verse 23. After spending some time there, that's in his home church, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So I'll switch to a different color since we're on a different trip. 
We've got him going up something like this through these, if you can see that, and then he heads down in a moment, and he's going to go back to Ephesus uh, right there. Now, let's reread from last week the Apollos story, because Apollos' story from last Sunday should be contrasted with today's text in chapter 19. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's to Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to, him, to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now today's text is just the first seven verses of chapter 19. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all." Now. Let me just show you here uh, real quick, just to, get, again, picture this city. This is a reconstruction of the city of Ephesus from about the time of Paul. This is probably a little bit past Paul's time, but this may have even been a, a number of decades after Paul. But this city was larger than Corinth. Remember, Corinth was between 150, 200,000. This is over 200,000 people, very likely, at the time. And you want to see what it looks like today? Not quite as flourishing a place. In fact, just to give you orientation on what we're looking at here, uh, if you can see uh, right from, the, from their little amphitheater. Do you see that little area there with the little colonnade? That's their main road going out to the harbor. You can still see that road in the amphitheater today. Okay, not quite as, as wonderful of a city anymore, but you can still see this, the same road hanging up here in the amphitheater right up here. But today there are still many ruins in Ephesus. Even off picture, there's a lot of really great ruins that people have been able to look at to investigate things going on. But this is the place where, uh, where this text would have taken place. Paul is ministering in this massive, massive city, and he runs into about 12 disciples, and things are going to get a little bit interesting. This is one of those strange passages in the book of Acts. And um, I have titled the sermon, just two words with a question mark on the end, unsaved disciples, with a question mark, unsaved disciples, because it seems to me like you have people here, about 12 of them, called disciples in verse 1, and it seems to me and to most people that these individuals are not saved that they do not know the Lord Jesus, they are not forgiven of their sins, that they are not truly converted. They are actually quite confused about what the salvation message is, and they have not actually experienced Christian conversion and Christian baptism. Now, I don't want to go on and on about this point here, but just, just hear me out on this. 
If you compare Apollos from last Sunday, remember Apollos? guy that was from Egypt and headed up there, super intelligent, but he didn't know all he needed to know. Apollos is similar to these people in some ways because they both only knew the baptism of John. That, that should be a, a connecting point between the two texts. But I don't think they're in the same category. I don't think Luke is trying to get us to say, see, Apollos is just like these 12. I think Luke is trying to get us to see, Luke is the author, I think Luke is trying to get us to see Apollos is actually, although he shares a few similarities, he's actually almost opposite of these 12. I think he wants us to contrast these two uh, groups of people. And so, what makes them so different is this. Number one, I mean, just obvious differences. Number one, Apollo, there is no sign Apollos is rebaptized, but these people are rebaptized. The only people in the Bible to get baptized twice are, are the people in this text. Apollos is not rebaptized, indicating he was truly a believer and was already baptized previously. Number two, Apollos was spoke boldly in the synagogue. Same word used for Paul, which is a Christian virtue to speak boldly in the synagogue. Number three, Apollos was boiling in spirit. You remember? He was on fire for the Lord. He was, he was fervent in spirit, which was a wonderful thing to be. That's what Paul commands us as Christians to be in Romans 12, be fervent in spirit. That sounds like a believer. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. That doesn't sound like an unbeliever, does it? Taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he didn't have everything figured out. So my assumption is, I admit, I admit there's a bit of educated guessing here. I think Apollos understood the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I don't think he fully understood what Christian baptism was, and, and therefore he was corrected in that regard. Now, at the risk of getting really tedious here, Matthew Henry and a number of other really good commentators, I think they're right, they say this. They argue that the disciples received, remember the baptism of John long ago? The argument is they did not get rebaptized as Christians after Pentecost. That their baptism by John was received rightly, and they knew that John's baptism was pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John made it very clear. It's not about me. Read John 1 through 3. I am not the one. He is. I'm not worthy to hold his sandals, untie his sandals. I got nothing to do with this guy's sandals. I'm not worthy to be his slave, okay? I, I, it's not about me. Let me decrease. Let him increase. John's whole message understood correctly was, I'm not the one. He is. And he baptizes Jesus. And if you were baptized by John, understanding his baptism was preparatory for Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away sin, you didn't need to get rebaptized as a Christian because you understood the purpose of his baptism. However, that's why Apollos, I don't think, was rebaptized, although he only had John's baptism. This is getting complicated. Are you, are you following? So, these 12 disciples, they get rebaptized. Why? I don't think they understood the purpose of John, truly. What, this is happening 25 years after John has been martyred by Herod. They weren't very likely, these individuals were not baptized by John. They probably never met John. You know, John had disciples too, just like Jesus. Remember John chapters 1 and 3, they talk about this. Remember, even some of John's disciples got a little turfy with Jesus' disciples, like, hey, our people are leaving us, John, and they're going to follow this Galilean, uh, this guy from Nazareth over there. Like, we don't like this. And John says, that's the whole point. The whole point of us being here is to send people to Jesus, and they didn't like it. So it seems to be, and this is true historically, there were followers of John the Baptist centuries after the church began. Second, third, maybe even fourth century, there were still followers of John the Baptist who were not Christian. A staggering thing. So, Luke is no doubt trying to minimize this false idea, but here's what I think is happening. These 12 had met some disciple of John, not John himself, but a disciple of John, and they had not gotten the full message from the disciple of John. 
They had gotten some kind of idea of repenting and being baptized, but did they understand about Jesus? I don't think so. Did they understand about His death, resurrection, and ascension? I don't think so. I think that they were vastly more ignorant than Apollos, which is why they were not even believers truly, and they needed to be converted and then truly baptized as, as Christians. Now, if you followed that, I think it's going to get easier as we go further. So, if, you, if, you're, if you're with me now, the hardest part, I think, is over. Uh, we, will, we will continue here. Let's walk through it in more detail. Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, pause. I think when Paul first met them, he may have assumed they were Christian disciples. He soon finds out, although the word disciple is normally used of followers of Jesus, these are actually John's disciples, which is the word disciple is used of people in the Gospel of John on multiple occasions. Number two, verse two. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, just stop. Can, can you hear the red alarm going off in Paul's mind as he talks to these people? We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Paul's going, uh-oh, this is not going as I hoped it was going to go. These guys looked like they were, they were true disciples of Jesus, but then as I started talking to them, you know, commentators speculate. Was it their attitude, their actions that just did not have the aroma of the Spirit of God in them? These people did not have the Holy Spirit. So they were walking in the flesh even though they were disciples of John. And so perhaps Paul started telling by how they spoke or what they said that something was not quite right. So he began to ask them some questions and he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now I have to say, and again, there's total agreement on this. It's not that they had never heard the term Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament, right? How many verses into the Old Testament do you have to go before you find the Holy Spirit? Three verses, okay? The Spirit, or is it the second verse? The, Holy, the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. You don't have to go far to, to see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. They knew of God's Spirit. He came upon uh, David, and He came upon Samson, and whatever. You know, the Spirit was all over the place, but they had not heard that the Spirit had been poured out in the Pentecost sense. The Spirit had been poured out to indwell believers. They had not heard that that had happened. You, you can think back real quick of, of uh, John's gospel. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 7, remember this? Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, He stood up and cried out. This is so good. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's amazing. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here's the point, just a massive application point here, and we'll continue with this as we go. Right now, the Spirit of the living God is available to all of you in this room. You know, I heard someone say, you know, I've read Shakespeare. I cannot imitate Shakespeare. You know, I, I can't do that. I, give me a pen and some paper. Give me a keyboard. Give me, give, me, give me a computer out. I'll pull up a Word document. I cannot write a play like Shakespeare. But if someone could give me the genius of Shakespeare, I could. And someone said, you know, I can't paint like a Rembrandt, Picasso, on and on. I can't paint like these people. Give me a paintbrush. I don't know what you're going to see by the time I'm done with it. But if you could give me the artistic brilliance of those painters and put it within me, 
I actually could begin to paint like those brilliant painters. Well, here's the thing. Maybe your life is not going quite the way you wish. Maybe there are serious moral failures in your life that you cannot seem to conquer. You cannot beat them. You're, you're, you're always falling and slipping, and, and you cannot seem to get any kind of grip on yourself spiritually. What if the same Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that Spirit, could indwell you? Like, this is not Sunday school answer stuff. This is not some sort of religious jargon. I'm being serious right now. God's Spirit can actually take up residence in your heart. That's what God's Word says. So you're like, I'm struggling. Okay, me too. I understand the struggle of life. I get it. Every day I need God. But I'm telling you, Jesus says, come to me if you are thirsty. He's not talking physical thirst. You're thirsty in your soul? Come to me and drink. And in your heart will flow a river of living water that will satisfy you now and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and next decade to the day you die and in eternity in fullness forever, God's presence with you in you, the Holy Spirit. This is not Sunday school. This is real. This is an actual promise from the living God on the authority of His Word. He will give you what your thirsty soul must have to survive. So let me just ask, if, if you're not a believer or you don't really know where you are spiritually, let me, let me say to you, how is life working out for you right now? On the scale of 1 to 10, how, how contented and satisfied do you, are you just kind of in general? And let me ask you, is there a thirst inside of you that is not easily satisfied? Is there a thirst that needs to be quenched? And right now you're looking for it in fill in the blank. You're looking for it in, you know the list, money, relationships, status. You're, you're looking for it in the next job, career opportunity, climbing the corporate ladder amongst your peers, what they think about you, some accomplishment you're trying to get done, some great aspiration you have for your life. Once I get there, then I'll feel blank. I'll feel good. I'll feel satisfied. I'll finally get there. And Jesus says, that's thirst. It's what motivates us all the time. We do what we do to try to quench that thirst. That's the whole point. And Jesus is saying, I, I mean, this is either complete arrogant lunacy or this is the truth of the living Jesus. You got to pick one of those two. This is not like a decent thing said by a good teacher. That's nonsense. If Benjamin Franklin said, come to me and I will give you living water, he's either a lunatic or he's telling the truth. But you can't just say he's a good guy. Either this is an evil false claim or this is the truth of Jesus. He says, let me, one more time. Let me read it one more time. Because this is what the 12 disciples did not have in this passage. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, that's all of us, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, which is the Spirit of the living God. So Jesus is putting on the table a real offer that the thirst in your soul can actually be quenched. And, and one of probably all of our favorite stories in the Bible is the woman at the well. And what I love about that story and what you probably love about the story for the same reason was that woman spiritually dehydrated. She, she was looking for satisfaction, and she had five failed marriages behind her to prove that nothing was working. And she was living with a guy she wasn't married to, and that wasn't working. And Jesus says to her, can you give me a drink? And she says, I, the well is deep. You, you need, you need. And Jesus says, listen, if you knew who was asking you, you would have asked me, and I would give you living water. And she says, wait, you mean living water means I don't have to come here on a hot day at noon and get water from this well? And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm saying. Go get your husband and come here. I don't have a husband. 
Jesus says, you are correct. You've had five husbands. The man you now live with is not your husband. What you have said is true. And she is uncomfortable with this exposure. And so she changes the subject. Oh, I see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. Your fathers worship in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Which is the right place to worship? And Jesus says, oh, you want to talk about worship, do you? That's what I'm already talking about. Where is your thirst going to be quenched? And that's the worship question. Whatever you are turning to to satisfy your soul is your Holy Spirit. You see what I'm trying to say here? Whatever you're looking to to satisfy is what you are putting in the place of the Holy Spirit. If you say, if my career gets here, if my children turn out this way, if my bank account and savings get here, if the stock market does this, if what people think of me goes here, then I will be satisfied. You are looking for those things to do what only the Holy Spirit of God can actually do, which is quench your thirst. And the promise on the table is you can actually find this. And so Jesus says to that woman, the hour is coming and is now here where the Father who is spirit is working, looking for true worshipers, not looking for you to worship on this mountain or that mountain. It's not about your geography. It's about worshiping in spirit and truth. It's about a heart that loves and knows Him. And so back to our main text here, Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Turn with me, hold your spot here and turn with me to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I debated how much of this text to read. I think I'm going to read a briefer portion, but I just want to get the gist of what is being described here. As you are turning there, let, let, let me just, I want to continue this point a little bit more. Um, God does not begrudge giving people His Holy Spirit. He doesn't look at you and go, look at all these terrible things you've done. I don't want to give my Holy Spirit to you. Come on. You've you got to earn this. You've got to get your life together, prove that you really mean it, do all these things. No. He just says, come to me and drink. And, and in case you think this is a one-time thing, you know how the Bible ends? The Bible ends with, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and take the free gift of the water of life without payment. That's how the Bible ends. In the last couple paragraphs of the Bible, there's this invitation, are you thirsty? Come and find satisfaction in me. And look at 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Look at what the Spirit does when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Part of the freedom that He brings, the Holy Spirit, is freedom from trying to find satisfaction in five failed marriages. That's part of the freedom He brings. The, the, the way that you are perhaps, I mean, let's be honest. All of us are tempted to think something will satisfy us other than Jesus. Can I get total agreement on that? We are all tempted to think something will satisfy us other than Jesus, right? We all know that experience. Okay, when, when we are doing that, we, when we believe that, when we believe X is more satisfying than Jesus, when we believe that about X, it will 100% of the time take away your freedom and enslave you because now you've got to serve this thing to get out it 
get out from it what you need to get out from it. So you're going to commit everything to this. All your time, your attention, your energy, your imagination, your money, your everything is going to be subservient to this thing because you have to have it on your terms to get what you need from it. And God says, my spirit will free you from that. It's not that we don't care about these other things anymore. It's that we're no longer enslaved to them as gods who can't save. And what He does is He opens our eyes, verse 18 again, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit takes the veil, the blinders off to the gospel of Jesus, and we behold the glory of the Lord. In the same way that we naturally find glory in a football season or a football game, or we find glory in a relationship, or we find glory in making a lot of money, do we see, do, we per, do you personally see glory in Jesus? Not just do you know true facts about Jesus, not just are you a disciple of John who has some morality and you're kind of trying to make it, no, no, no. Do you see glory, beauty in the Lord Jesus? Because if you do, it will begin to transform your life. It will begin to change you. Look at chapter 4, verse 4, verse 3 of chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, how do I know that the Holy Spirit is living within me, truly? That's the question today. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? That's Paul's question to all of us. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Are you a true disciple? And the way we know this is what? We used to look at the gospel of Jesus, and it was distasteful to us. It was boring. I mean, compare watching the newest Avengers movie or whatever. I don't even really care, but you, the new, new Avengers movie. Compare the excitement you might feel about that, or so, some new album just came out of a band that you love. The excitement you feel about that, or going to a concert, or hanging out with your friends, or going out into a party. The, the excitement we feel, the glory that's all wrapped around those things. Compare that to how you personally feel affection towards Jesus and His gospel. If you say, there's not even, a, like if I'm being honest, there's not even a close comparison. The, the UGA football game is 10,000 times more exciting than spending time with the Lord. Just not even close. 10,000 times more glorious, 10,000 times more captivating. I would far rather do that than this in my heart of hearts if I was being honest with myself or whatever, fill in whatever it may be for you. There, there are some serious questions if that's true. Because a genuine believer is not simply someone who's prayed the prayer and has been baptized and is some kind of disciple in some form. No, no, no. A genuine believer is someone who said, what once was blindness, ugliness, tasteless is now, like Peter says, I've tasted and I've seen how good God is. I've tasted His goodness. And, and Paul says opening the eyes of the heart are open to who, who Christ actually is in the gospel. All right, let's, let's turn back to Acts chapter 19. Start again at verse 2. And Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. See, that's the missing piece, right? These followers of John did not know the last part of that sentence. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have had to say it. John baptized with the baptism of repentance. What, the, what had they not heard? Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. That's what they hadn't done. They hadn't known John was all about Jesus. They hadn't believed in or trusted in Jesus. Therefore, they had not been filled or indwelled with God's Spirit. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, just because Believe me, this is far from the main point today, but I think I need to stop and address this on the side because this is not true of all people in this category. But I, I certainly have known uh, Pentecostal or charismatic Christians who would misuse, I think, this passage in a way that would not be correct. And so I talked about this months ago in Acts 8, and let me just do a short version of this. It is something called, I have to address this. I had someone confront me about this. I think I told you all six months ago, I, I had an older lady sit me down who was very Pentecostal, charismatic, and she said, Mark, I know that you love the Lord, but uh, you, have you spoken in tongues yet? I said, I, I, have, I have not. And she said, well, you're missing out on the second blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the second blessing of grace. And so she asked me to go home and plead with the Lord to give me the second blessing of the Spirit so that I could speak in tongues. Now, um, I think that that is a, is a pretty serious misunderstanding of these texts. And what, what's going on here is, number one, the disciples here are not already Christians waiting for the second blessing. They're not Christians. They're waiting for the first blessing. They're waiting to actually receive the Holy Spirit. Now, without confusing you, in Acts 8, it's a little bit more challenging because I think there's a group of Samaritans who are converted, but do you remember the story? Philip, they're converted under Philip, they're baptized, but they have to wait because uh, John and Peter come down from Jerusalem or go up from Jerusalem, and they, they uh, put their hands on them, and then they receive the Spirit, and, and they probably speak in tongues. They, they do miraculous things. And... Um, the reason I bring this up also is I had a student last year who, after I preached on that text, asked me, having no idea I had preached on it just recently, she, she asked me uh, at the end of a class, she said, my dad and I were reading Acts, and we got to Acts 8, and we were very confused by the fact that they were converted here, and then a few weeks later, they received the Spirit here in Acts 8. What, what is going on there? And so, uh, I thankfully just preached on it. Don't you love those moments? <laughs> you just studied something, and you kind of know how to take it. But the, the answer here is, that was a unique, and Acts 8 is different than here, here they're converted, they receive the Spirit, they're baptized all together in Acts 19. In Acts 8, which is often misused, it's an exceptional one-time moment in all of redemptive history where God wants to keep the unity between the Jerusalem Jewish church and the Samaritan half-Jewish church, right? And so the, if, if they would have received the Spirit independent of the apostles, it could have started two distinct churches that would have been at odds with each other. But the Lord chose once that we've ever heard of, to convert them and delay the giving of the Spirit for a couple of weeks. Why? So that the, the apostles from Jerusalem could come lay their hands and keep the unity between those two branches of the church. So that is a once-for-all, not-to-be-repeated event in Acts chapter 8 in redemptive history. All right, now I, I want to get back on our main point here. Uh, verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they received, they received the Spirit. I, I had this, this kind of thing, I wish it happened 
every week. It, it certainly does not. It happens far more rarely than I, than I would wish. I'll just tell you briefly. I won't give the name. I don't want to embarrass him. But um, So, Friday morning at Westminster at our high school where Jerry and I teach, um, we had with small groups uh, for chapel time. So, everyone gets their small group and they go, they go to different uh, places uh, around campus. And I just was kind of randomly, or maybe Jerry intentionally assigned me into a certain room. So, I was, in a, I was in a room somewhere and I was sort of minding my own business. I'm not really supposed to be running this thing. I'm just supposed sort to of, sort of be the referee in case things get a little bit uh, interesting. You never know. So, so, students are leading it and other younger students are or participants. You have sixth or seventh graders, and you have maybe a tenth or eleventh grader sort of leading it, and uh, in the one I was in. So I'm just sort of sitting there minding my own business. I'm actually trying to grade some papers and get some stuff done at a table nearby, and they're in a little circle and they're talking. And uh, all of a sudden, the guy leading it, who I don't know very well, he said, "You know, I, I came to know the Lord truly about a year ago." And then he kept talking. Now, any time I hear stuff like that, I always want to go, "Wait, I want, what, t- tell me more about that." So I, I kind of just paused the small group. I said, "Hey, uh, can you tell me what?" Wh- I had a suspicion, but I wasn't sure. I said, can you tell me what happened? And um, this is when I started kind of flipping out in front of the whole group because this is just so exciting. But he said, um, a year ago, about a year ago, Jerry and I had switched classes on this particular day. He took my students, I took his students, okay? And uh, just for a day, just to kind of have fun, mix it up a little bit. And so I got his, what grade was it, Jerry? Ninth grade. So I took his ninth graders that day, and Jerry had my maybe 11th or 12th graders, 12th graders that day. And... Um, I shared my testimony. Growing up in a Christian school, not genuinely converted for a long time. Finally, the conversion happened. My life changed radically uh, quickly at the end of high school. And I challenged them on this. I just challenged them because I said, listen, Christian school kid does not prove anything about you being a believer. It's very easy just to kind of go through the motions like I did for more than a decade. After it was over, this young man who I don't know that I'd ever spoken to he walks over to me. I still remember where he was sitting on the corner of the room. He walks up to me, and he's got tears in his eyes. Now, if there's ever tears in the eyes at the end of class, it's because I'm going on too long or whatever. And there's other reasons. But this is not, these, were, these were different kind of tears. He comes up to me. Everyone's leaving, and everyone did leave. And he stayed, and he said, I need you to pray for me. I said, what's going on? He said, I don't know where I am with the Lord. Like, I don't really know that I, because you described not being truly saved. I don't know that I'm truly saved, and I'm really concerned about it. And he was getting emotional. And that, this kind of stuff happens. You stop everything, right? You just stop everything when that's happening. So we prayed together right there in the classroom with no one else present, and, 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 and he, he left. Well, he said, he'd rem- on Friday, he said, you told me something at the end of class. I remember, I remember saying this. He said, you told me not just to treat it like a, sinner, a one-time magical sinner's prayer. You just pray the formula and you get saved, right? I've always said you can save a parrot if it's just the sinner's prayer, okay? Just repeat after me, right? Think about that. So, um, I won't do an imitation of that right now, but you can just imagine. So, it's not just saying a magic formula, you know? Almost everybody in Athens, Georgia has prayed the prayer, okay? I mean, the, the drug addict down the road has prayed the prayer. I mean, people, people have prayed the prayer all over the place. That, that does not prove anything. What, what, I, what, I'm, what I would like to say is, he, he, he remembered me saying this, that, that I said, you don't just pray a magic formula and then just go, I'm in no matter what. He said, you told me to keep on pleading with God to change my heart until my heart actually started to change in its desires, which is what I tell people all the time. That's like my, I'm always competing against the sinner's prayer, which most of us grew up with, which I think is extremely unhelpful in many ways. And I'm trying to give a corrective. It's not a one-time magic formula. It's you plead with God to change your deepest desires until they change. I said if a leper went to pray and ask for healing, he wouldn't just pray one time and go home with leprosy still showing and say, hey, I'm healed. People would say, no, you're, you're still a leper. You would keep on praying until what? 
the leprosy went away. And there's leprosy in your heart. It's called sin. And until the Lord does a change, not that our sin goes away, but that our desires begin to change by His Holy Spirit, we have not truly come to know Him savingly. And he said, this student said, he said, I left that day after we prayed. He said, I prayed to God for the next week that He would change my heart. And he said, after a week, it happened. And he's been saying that for a solid year now. He's been saying, now when I read the Bible, things are starting to change. It's different. There's an excitement about the Lord, a desire for the Lord, the delight in the Lord that, that I did not have before. And I, I just about freaked out in front of the whole small group. I was like, that is absolutely amazing. That is just incredible. And so I would just say to you, if, if you feel like you're in the, the group of these 12 here, you're a disciple in some way, but you don't have the Holy Spirit, you say, I don't think He's changed me. Listen, there is tremendous hope for you. Because if you will plead with the Lord to change your desires, not just going to church on Sunday. Anybody can go to church on Sunday. The devil can go to church on Sunday. It's not hard to do, okay? What you need to do is ask, plead with the Lord, Lord, I love this right now more than I love you. I love thinking about this more than I love thinking about you. It's obvious to me. And I can't change my heart. Can a leper change his spots? I can't change my heart. And say, Lord, please change my desires. Don't be a slave of your desires. Ask God to change your desires. Make, say, Lord, I delight in all these things, but not you. Help me delight myself in the Lord. Become the desire of my heart, please. And do that until the affections actually begin to change. The Lord loves to answer those prayers. Keep on asking until the door is open. Keep on knocking until it is open. Keep on pleading until the answer is yes. Do so, and the Lord loves to give His Holy Spirit to those who will ask. Turn with me to the right as we think about communion in just a moment. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is no add-on to this sermon. This is the right conclusion of this sermon. So, I want you to hear this for, for just a moment. You ever think about the fact that communion involves these elements where you're, you've got the cup and you've got the bread? You're, you're consuming, you're eating and drinking. Now, just, just think for a second. Jesus, on, the, on the, the night of the betrayal, He holds up the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, verse 25. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Just, just stop for one moment. In John's gospel, in John 4, with the woman at the well, he offers her what? Living water. When you fast forward, John 7, he says, anyone who thirsts, I'll give you water to drink. I'll quench your thirst. And then a few chapters later, the word thirst comes out of Jesus' mouth again. But this time, he says, I thirst. What's going on in John's gospel? It's a theology of soul quenching. Jesus says, listen, what you and I, what, what you guys and me, what we deserve in this room, we deserve eternal thirst away from the presence of God. We, we deserve soul misery in the outer darkness. And yet Jesus offers you living water. How can God give sinful people living water? On the cross, He became thirsty with cosmic thirst. He was abandoned by God the Father. All of God's spiritual nearness was gone, taken away from Him. He was unimaginably thirsty in body and soul, and He was cast out so that we could be called and brought in by God's grace. And so what we're looking at here is a celebration, a feast in the presence of God because Jesus was hungry and thirsty on the cross for us. That, that's what we need to see here. In verse 24, 
Verse 23, I'm sorry. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not living in unrepentant sin or out of fellowship with another because of your own sinfulness, we would ask that you, uh, that you come forward in just a moment and take of these elements. If you are in, an, did I say that backwards? If you're, if you're in a state of unrepentant sin, uh, refrain. If you are not a believer, we would ask you not to come forward. You don't need the elements. You need what these elements represent, which is what we have described, which is the living water that Jesus will give you right now in your seat if you will plead with Him for it in this very moment. And so, let us bow together in prayer as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we are all by nature spiritually thirsty, and I think the older you get, the more things you try and the less you see how anything can fulfill you other than you. God, I pray that you would make us weary and exhausted in our sinfulness. Make us despair in our sin. Make us hate what our sin does to us. Help us, God, not to stay away from living water as we begin to starve and dehydrate. Help us instead come take the free gift of the water of life without payment for whosoever who wills. Anyone can have it if they desire. And God, I pray that you would even now remind us of the feast that we have in you because of what Christ endured for us on the cross. Be at work now, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read, just with your heads bowed, are you personally right now holding on to something that you know is in the way of Jesus in your life? And if so, would you repent? Would you fling it away? Would you let go, release the grip that you have on it in your heart, and turn alone to Jesus? I'm going to read from the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy." And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Heavenly Father, it's just overwhelming to think about this reality that there is going to be the new Jerusalem and living water and the tree of life to satisfy the hungers and thirsts of our soul freely available for all who will come now and take of this free gift from You. But those who ultimately resist and ultimately harden their hearts will be cast outside of this city. God, help us not to be in that group. Help us to freely release whatever is holding on to us and to find the true freedom and the true joy and the true life that only comes in the path of holiness before the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, please be with us. Help our lives in some way to be consistent in these things. Help us to repent when we fail, to get back up and to continue on this journey. Thank you for your grace day in, day out to sustain us, and I pray you would sustain us to this great day. And I pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.